So we'll get that started. Okay, so Exodus 19, verses 1 through 8. We're doing a, a series, right? It's kind of one of the key themes that is in the Bible that connects this entire story of the Bible into one continuous story. And we talked about how the Bible is just that. It's one continuous story. It's got multiple writers from Moses all the way till John and Revelation. It's got one author who's the Holy Spirit. And it's one story, and it's the one story of God, about God, and for God. Like how Tim Keller puts it, he says, The Bible is not a compendium of varied stories like Aesop's fables, each with directions and examples on how to live. If that's all the Bible is, the Bible is basically all about you and all about me, and what you must do, and what I must do. But read rightly, the Bible is a single story, and it's not about you, but it's about him. And it's not so much about what you must do, but it's what he has already done. He made the world. It was devastated because of our turning away from him. He reentered the world to rescue us from sin and death, and he's going to remake it. In a single storyline that can be discerned as it moves from creation to devastation to the rescue and the redemption and the complete restoration at the end. And all in the storyline is crucial for us, right? We cannot have disconnected doctrine, right? We need to have doctrine, but also we don't need to have disconnected practical application in our lives, okay? The Bible is here for our reproof, for our instruction, for our rebuke, for training in righteousness, all right? So I don't want a book. I don't want to be looking at a book for disconnected stories and disconnected moral values. It's all together. It's all one. It all fits in. It all matches together, okay? Two weeks ago, we looked at the origin of this. Where does sin come from? Where does death come from? We realize that it comes from ultimately how heaven and earth are ripped apart by our sin, that our relationship with God is ripped apart by our sin. And, and from that, the wages of sin is death. Then we looked at, in that, still how the gospel is in the middle of a graveyard in Genesis chapter 3. We looked last week at Genesis 6 through 8. We looked at the judgment that God uses by death. He uses death to judge the world, and that's just the way he's going to do it again. But we realize that just that God had provided Noah an ark, that God provides us an ark, and that ark's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so knowing that, we want to fit that into what we're going to learn today. And so today, we want to look at what happens after judgment. Because truth is, there is a judgment to come. There's a second judgment. But I'm telling you, there's already been a first judgment. There's been a first judgment. And the first judgment was on Christ for us. He took the judgment for us. So knowing he's taken our first judgment, what now? We want to ask the question, now what? Now what? So Exodus 19, verses 1 through 8. The word says this. It says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. It says, There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 7 says, So Moses came and called to the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our fathers in heaven, Lord, all honor and glory is to you. 
Focus our minds, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say. And we realize that everything we need to know comes from your word. I'm just thankful that you get to use me to share what I've learned and honestly really be a vessel for the Holy Spirit to speak, God. Uh, so let that be the case. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Exodus 19, I think we know what happens. I think we, this is, this is Bible school. I think uh, Israel is in Egypt. That's the setting. And so I want to give you an overview of the recent events of the Hebrew people. These are the descendants of Noah. These are the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, okay? The promised descendants of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now we have a people of slaves who are really living as aliens in a foreign land. Uh, I kind of see that they're the undesirables. They're the unwanted people. They're the slaves. They're the aliens in a pagan world that has that has a pagan idols, pagan gods, and uh, there's all kinds of things going on. There's plagues, there's genocide, there's a whole bunch of corruption. So you could really say that this is a land of death. Egypt is a land of death for the Israelites. They cried out to God, Lord, can you save us? And that was what, that's what God has done. And so we know the story. God does judge the land, lest we look like, looked at last week. God does judge the land. But yet, like Noah, God provides a way of escape for those he loves. And the first way of escape he provides is that when God judges the entirety of the land, he judges each household in Egypt. And a little hint that comes later in the Bible is that he has them sacrifice a lamb and put its blood upon the doorpost so that the angel of death will over will overlook the Israelites and the Israelites will be held safe. So it's like he provides an ark for them, right? Next thing he does is he leads them through the Red Sea, through water, which is also another big hint, hint about things to come, but he leads them through water and brings them into safety, into security, out of the land of death and away from their enemies. Okay? So this all leads up to what I think is the climax of the Exodus story. I'm going to tell you that the climax of the Exodus story is actually not the Red Sea. It's not coming out of Egypt. It's actually what happens right after. I think the climax of our lives is actually not just when we are saved, but I think it's what comes right after. I think it's what God has to give us. It's the mission God has to give us. And that's actually exactly what happens. See, Moses goes up to Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments, but he also receives something more. He receives something a whole lot more. In fact, he receives the reason why they have the Ten Commandments. And I think we focus on the Ten Commandments, and we don't necessarily see their function in the mission of God. And we're going to look at that just a little bit today. So we know that God chooses specific people, right? So you want to ask some questions right now. Ask some questions. Why would God do this? Why does he save people? Because he loves them? Sure. Because he promised this to their ancestors, to their ancestor Abraham. Absolutely, God fulfills his promises. But I want you to know that there's more to the story. Yes, he loves them. Yes, he's fulfilling a promise. But there's something more at the end. There's another bigger reason that, that, that's, that's providential, that's divine, that's, that's underlying, that there's this, there's this string, there's this fabric that we don't exactly see that I want us to see today. Why does God do this? Why does God save people? What is God's purpose in saving people? Why go through the trouble? God spends, I guess I can't say he spends, to be honest, but he spends his effort rescuing a virtually useless people. These people are useless. They're slaves. They're misfits. They're the runts of the world. The Jews, most of the time, have kind of been the underdogs. God saves the underdog, and you wonder why. Why lead them through the wilderness for 40 years after, even though they're, 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 they're idolatrous, they rebel, there's mutiny, there's betrayal, they, they, they mutiny against Moses. Why, 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 why does he stick around? 
Why does he keep his promise? Why does he stick with it? Why does he even save Israel into the promised land? I want to ask, does it make sense for God to simply save people for saving sake? I want to get at this a little more. I want to ask, does God do anything recklessly? Does God do anything without purpose? God does nothing without purpose. In fact, every single thing that God does, every single action, every single thought, every single word he gives us has purpose. It has meaning that is eternal. That is cosmic. That is, like I said, it's providential. It's predestined. He's already set up what he's going to do. And I want you to know that God does not deal in junk. And this real, the Israelites are not junk to God. He's going to use them for a specific purpose. We already learned that God uses weak people. And we learned that God does not do anything recklessly. And he does nothing without reason. God is purposeful to the finest, most minute detail. He knows the hair, the number of hairs on your head understand that he always has been in a way and that's exactly what we find in this one continuous story of the bible and the answer we find actually is why does god do this is in verses five and six he says now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples you know the whole earth is mine and you shall be what there be like <laughs> That's kind of funny. That's divine purpose. Oh. Okay, let's let's not get our hopes up. There's that good service interrupted. All right. Anyway, I'll start on verse 5 again. Let's refocus. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the whole earth is mine, you shall be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God wants to do something with a ragtag bunch of slaves, doesn't he? That's pretty cool. God wants to make a hopeless people, a purpose-driven people. He wants to make them intentional. He wants to give them a mission. God's intention is to, one, make them a kingdom of priests. Who could tell me what the job of a priest is in the Old Testament? Say it louder. Mediator. One of the people in the back. He's a mediator. He's a mediator. The priest is a mediator. The priest is the guy that goes into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. Mankind's out there. Israel's out there. God's in here. And he talks in between the two. And what he does is he makes sacrifices each year to forgive the people, to get the people forgiven of their sins, to plead for mercy before God. But another thing the priests do is they are the harbingers of truth to the Jewish society, to the Jewish nation. They're the people that, that know their Torah. They memorize the whole Torah. They, they understand the commands of God, and they say, hey, I'm here to walk with you. Here's how to obey the commands of God. I am your shepherd. Go do this, okay? Second thing God says is that you are a holy nation. A holy nation. What's holy mean? Set apart. That's right, Paul. Holy means be set apart. This is the birth of a new nation under God. It's one of them. It's the first of its kind. And Israel says, or God says, Israel, you got to be holy. you got to be the holiest to the highest degree. And you are given, here's the function of the law. You are given the law to help you do that. The law is here to help you be this holy nation, this holy kingdom of priests. And so what God wants to do altogether is, What's he want to do with Israel? He calls them, the whole nation, a bunch of priests. What's he saying? He's saying, you're the mediator between God and creation. You're the mediator between God and mankind. These people right here, 
God says, I want them. I want these people. I want them to be mine. And you are going to be my means of production. You're going to be my means of accomplishment. That's what God says. And so altogether, these are God's chosen people made up of priests composing, composing a nation of light and of life. This is the life of the world. All together in a grand ministry. And the grand ministry of God is this. It's three things. And I, I like that they all start with R. But I just came up that with that so you can remember this. But the first ministry of God is this. It's the one we found in Genesis chapter 3. It's the ministry of restoration. God says, I'm going to bring peace, and I'm going to bring justice, and I'm going to restore the world back to how it was in the very beginning. This world as it is, it's not going to be like this much longer. He says, it's back to Eden. It's back to Eden. It's back to heaven and earth meshed all back together again where God and man walk together as one. The second ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, where God is going to bring to the ends of the earth, using Israel, he's going to bring himself to the people, to mankind, the billions of people that are on the planet. Israel brings them a God who loves and who will save them because he does love them. So what God wants to do is he wants to bring humanity itself from death to life. And the third ministry is the best ministry. It's the ministry that accomplishes it all. It's the ministry of revelation. The claim that there's going to be a future Messiah who's going to, who's going to defeat sin, who's going to defeat death, who's going to defeat Satan himself. The ministry of revelation. And that's what the scripture says. The whole Old Testament talks about that. It talks about restoration. It talks about reconciliation. It talks about revelation. That's the whole goal. The whole Old Testament is talking about Jesus. It's talking about how God is going to fix everything. Okay? Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Israel, all the families of earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 49, 6, talking to the prophet Isaiah. Is it too light a fame that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserves of Israel? And here's why. I will make you as a light for the nations that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Sometimes I wonder how the Jews miss it. I don't understand how they miss it. They read their scripture. They miss this every time that their job in the beginning was to reach everybody else, but then they ended up just putting walls around themselves. It's fascinating. But overall, this is the grand rescue of the universe. And God says to these poor slaves, these poor Israelite slaves, these people who rebel all the time, who's idolatrous, they're weak. In fact, really in Exodus, they don't even know God yet because they don't have the Ten Commandments and God has not revealed himself totally. But regardless, God says, you get a part. You get a huge part to play. And he says, join me. Join me in the mission. Well, what happened? Well, I mentioned it earlier. The nation that was gifted the mission of God, by and large, fell, right? They fell into idolatry. In fact, <laughs> do you know what Moses finds when he brings down the Ten Commandments? Idolatry. He finds the people worshiping golden cow. It's ridiculous. And this is this the a microcosm of the rest of Israel's history that they forsake God. They love their sin more. They love their comfort. They love their pleasure. They don't want to obey God. They don't care about the mission anymore. And they don't care to support the cause of justice or to take care of the needy, the poor, the fatherless. In fact, the priests themselves were led astray. The priests forgot the whole mission too. And they just made vain sacrifices that were worthless before God. And aside from a few good kings, like King David, like Solomon, like Josiah, and a few, aside from a few good revivals like what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah, Israel abandons the mission, okay? 
Israel abandons the mission. They forget God. They forget his commands. And they forget God's purposes as well. Best two words of the Bible. How did you know that? How did you know that? You, did you read my notes? <laughs> two most important. I cannot. The Holy Spirit right there. I'm dead serious. But God. Two most word, important words in the Bible. But God wasn't done yet, right? Israel was unfaithful, but God is faithful. God actually comes and he fulfills the mission himself. He fulfills the ministry himself. And really, he revamps it. He restarts it. And uh, he doesn't really make any nuanced changes, but he really fulfills the mission, what was unknown. So, climax of the lesson, preach the gospel to you. This is how God accomplished it. See, God, as promised by the scriptures, by this one continuous story, sends a Messiah as he promised. In fact, God, I like I watched the blind the other day, and it says, and the preacher's speaking to Phil Robertson. He says, God comes down from the mountain. And that's just what happened. God himself steps down from heaven and becomes a man, as promised. God himself preaches a new forever ever kingdom where all are invited as promised. And our Messiah lives the life we could never live as promised. And he dies the death that we deserved in order to pay the debt I could not pay as promised. And then my God raises from the dead and defeats sin, Satan, and death as promised from the very beginning. And he wins. And he says, and as promised, all who repent and believe in him by faith get victory and resurrection too. So Jesus reigns as promised. And I said earlier, before we read the scripture, to ask the question. The question is, now what? Now what? We're so what? Okay? The gospel. That's good. I took it. I accept it. I believe it. Check mark, right? Is that it? No. That's not it. So the king reigns. But if there's a king, there's a what? There's a kingdom. And what, or rather, who is that kingdom? I wonder, well, what does 1 Peter 2, 9 say? It says, this is Peter to the church, by the way. Peter to the New Testament church. You're the New Testament church in the 21st century, so this is your verse. It says, you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, as Israel was, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me tell you something, the now what question. I don't want to be Israel. I don't want to see God coming down after he rescues us to find us worshiping idols, okay? Or to worship comfort, or to worship pleasure, not give a you-know-what about anything that God cares about. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fall into sin. I don't want to cause... I don't want to stop supporting the cause for the weak and poor. I don't want to give up comfort for Christ. Or I do want to give up comfort for Christ. I will meditate on God's commands, his purposes, and I'm going to remember how he brought me out of dark, out of the dark, out of death, into his wonderful light. And I will say this too. I was not born again to wait for heaven, but I was born again to bring it down. We're waiting on heaven. Heaven's coming, I promise you. But don't just sit there. Don't sit on your front porch drinking your lemonade. That's not what a Christian lifestyle looks like, okay? And I want to prove it to you. I want to prove that this mission is true for you, even for you small town folk in Hearn, Texas, in the state of Texas, in the United States of America, where you're so blessed. But I want to show you Christians who are elsewhere, who are not in the godly country, who are the living, breathing, chosen kingdom of God. And I want to give you some takeaways 
to help you in taking care of life. I spent about a month living with these two people right here in France this summer with another group from Manchester France before. And what these two right here are trying to do, well, give it to you right now, is they are trying to be the people of God in a corrupted world. And I want to practically encourage, rebuke, and show us what we need to do. Jerry and Zuby Jones, that's who these people are. They live in La Chapelle à Rebeau, France, in Europe. And Jerry and Zuby started the Institute of La Chapelle. So Jerry and Zuby originally met in the UK. Uh, she's actually English. She's a Brit. He's an American from California. Uh, wonderful Church of Christ people. And Jerry, after they met uh, in the United Kingdom, they moved back to California, actually close to Los Angeles. And Jerry spent time as a preacher, and he spent time as a football coach, basketball coach in Oxford, actually. And even spent time as a Bible lecturer at Pepperdine. How do we pronounce it? Pepperdine? Pepperdine. See, good right there. Anyways, but their whole dream for a long time, and Jerry was lots of time investing in the stock market just to do it, by the way. It's a funny story, but the whole time he wanted to take a mission to France. That's what he wanted to do. See, they, they knew French history, they knew French culture, and they loved the French people. They'd been there before. These, these, these are history nerds, and they know the history and the culture of France pretty well, but they know the people even better. And the thing about the people in France is that it's, France is actually considered the first secular civilization in the West. Did you know that? A lot of the age of reason ideas came out of this country, came out of France. A lot of the things that have really plagued this planet, I'll be honest with you. But what Jerry and Zuby want to do is they want to institute a Christian school for higher education. They want to bring students from Harding, students from Abilene Christian, students from all these wonderful universities over for study abroad trips. Jerry says he wants to open a theology department. He wants a theology department. He wants to teach apologetics. But more than anything, to be real honest with you, he wants to start a football program. <laughs> and he wants to use it for the glory of God. And he's in the offensive coordinator position. So if he gets that started up, I may be saying deuces. But anyways, like I said, in this country where he establishes a university, or what he's trying to establish a university at, is a place where very few honor God. If you didn't know the people in France, and if you were to just take a trip through the countryside or take a trip in Paris, just explore, you would think this is one of the most Christian nations in the world. You want to know why? Churches everywhere. The center of every single village and every single city has a beautiful church right in the middle, right at the forefront of it. In Paris, there are <coughs> dozens of large, beautiful cathedrals. Along the sides of the road, there are these crucifixes that just stand beside the roads as mile markers. They're mile markers or crucifixes or kilometer markers, at least. They're crucifixes. And you're wondering, what's wrong with these people? They, they forgot. They forgot God. They abandoned God. That's what they did. Just 2% of the population is actually Protestant who believe in salvation by faith. And even if we take the Catholic population, which is about half, it's all... It's not, it's, it's like identification. It's not even a, just practicing. It's just like, well, my mom and dad are Catholic, so I'm Catholic. And so they, they really don't practice religion at all. Even in the village where Jerry and Zuby at, there are five people who attend church, who attend mass in this tiny, or in this really, this really big church building. It's even in the village, even in the rural areas. Anyway, the truth is, though, that there are 67 million people in France who are without a savior. They don't have a savior. 
They don't even know the gospel. They don't know anything. They don't even know Bible studies, Bible stories, because this country has just been stripped of its history. It's been stripped of its culture by the age of reason, and now by this, even the material world, but also now in this post-truth society that's just plaguing Western civilization. It's awful. But yet, but God is using them. And day by day and brick by brick, their dream is becoming a reality. And they will stop at nothing to see the gospel prevail in a place where it has been quenched. It has been quenched here. Jerry and Zuby would say that they were hand-chosen by God for something a whole lot greater than themselves. Okay, They have a specific mission, a specific ministry that they have to accomplish. And their mission is not get to heaven. They have that secured. So they're not waiting on something. They're proactivating it. They're bringing heaven down is what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring God to people without God. So point number one is this. God's purpose is not to simply beam you up to heaven. If it was, none of you would be sitting here right now. Y'all be with the Lord right now. Clearly, you should think every day when I wake up in the morning, it means that God has set something before me for me to accomplish. Okay? You have a mission. You have a purpose. Every breath that you have has a purpose. And I want to say that Christ did not just die for dying's sake. He brought you out of the land of death into the kingdom of God. God chooses to save you into the greatest ministry in history. Did you know it? You. If you're a Christian, are you in Christ? you got something that nobody else has. Jerry and Zuby are the holy priesthood. They're the royal priesthood. They're mediators, like I said, between pagan atheists and a great God. They are the truth proclaimers in a truthless society. Which leads me to my second point. Is that our purpose is to declare the truth. You have to declare the truth. And you got to be ashamed of it, unashamed of it. You're supposed to be the priest and the ambassador for God. You know what you say to people? Come and see. Just like the disciples did in the, in the, in the New Testament, in the gospel, said, come and see. I'm telling you about this guy, but I promise if you really come see him, if you really come believe in it, you're going to see that it's true. That's your job. And you don't <laughs> compromise on it. Preach the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, people, all of it. And anything less is falling short of God's purpose for you. And they also decide to live a holy life, a set-apart life. They're the most holy people in France. You want to know why? Because they're some of the very few people who actually follow God in France. So, this is what I think holy looks like. It looks different. Holy looks weird. Holy looks very, very unusual. These are the strangest people in the little village of La Chapelle-Alaboule in France. The strangest people. They're strange people even among Christians. They're strange because they're just so on fire for God. They're so just in it. They're just in it. But I think what sets them apart from anything else, any command that they follow, any command that they obey, even the mission, is their love. Their love is incredible, which leads me to my third point. Our purpose is to be a people of great love, radical love, crazy love, as Francis Chan would say. In fact, I don't think anyone would have anything to believe if we did not love. That's exactly what Jesus says in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
You know what Jesus just said? Can I put it in? Pretty plain, but I'll put it even plainer. He says, nobody's going to believe what you have to say if you don't love people. And if you don't love each other. You understand what I'm saying, church? Truth plus love equals conversion. All right? Okay. So God's chosen nation of priests fulfilling the ministry of restoration, reconciliation, and revelation. I'm going to tell you something. These people are life. There is a life in the land of death, and you are too. And all together, Jerry and Zuby, me and you, the church at large, the church across different races, across different backgrounds, different cultures, all of it. One mission, and all together we are God's special possession. We are the beautiful handiwork of God. And I want to say that God's special possession does not look like a beautiful trophy on a shelf that sits there for 30 years. <coughs> Some people look at it that way. You don't collect dust. You're a Christian. You should be, you are spotless, but you are actively being used. You're not a special trophy. You are a special tool. That's what special possession means, a special tool. Point number four. God does not deal in junk, and you are not junk. You are not a junk trophy. You are of incredible importance to him, and he wants you to fulfill your new purpose. He wants you to do your God-given work. And you may think, I gave a similar message to my home church who lives in a similar small town in northeast Texas. I gave the same message. You may think, I can't do anything like these people. I can't pack it up. I can't invest in the stock market just to, just to go out to a tiny village in France to be light in life and salt in life. But the truth is, they're not any more special than you are. Not, they're not more special possession than you are. They're Christians, right? They're just Christians. They're the hands and the feet. They're the ministry. They're the kingdom of God on earth. You are chosen to join the ministry of bringing restoration, reconciliation, and revelation to a land of death. And just like Israel was strategically placed where they were, do you know where Israel was? The center of the world. Still is the center of the world. Do you know how many world empires have rose and fallen around Israel? Rome, Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Samaria, Egypt. God put them there for a reason, even geographically. Even geographically, in Hearn, Texas, you were put here for a reason. Understand that. Whether you work for the city of Bryan, or whether you repair electrical circuits, whether you teach math, whether you build bridges, whether you sell crop insurance, or whether you preach for a pulpit, or whether you're a high school student or a college student who's about to finish his degree and go coach or something like that, you are the hands and the feet and the kingdom and the mission of God at work. And I like uh, what Ray has been saying on the little Bible, Bible class videos. He said a couple of weeks ago that you are in Getty. You are in Getty. And in Getty was an oasis in the middle of the desert. Water represents life. You are the oasis in the middle of a land of death. You understand that? You. You're in Christ. That's who you are. Israel wasn't big or strong enough either. They were weak, they were vulnerable, they were slaves. They were a lot worse off than you were. And God said, join me. Be the mission for me. Okay? I want to say this too. This work that God gives us until we get to heaven, incredibly fulfilling. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come to give life to the full, abundant life. And I'm going to tell you that abundant life is not a measure, just a measure of time. You know that? 
Eternal life is not just a measure of time. It's a measure of quality, not just quantity. And God says, I'm going to make your life so fulfilling and so abundant, so fruitful, that you will stand out. Nobody else will have what you have. You're a Christian. Nobody's got what you got. Remember that. So I want to sum it all up. I promise I'll end right here. God's purpose is not to simply be, simply beam you up into a distant metaphysical heaven. Yes, heaven will come, but that's just the point. Heaven comes because of what you do. I really do believe that the coming of the day of the Lord happens in accordance with how hard God's people are working to get in here. I'm not saying he's dependent on us. We're dependent on him, but we're working side by side with each other. Okay? He gave you an ark. We looked at last week. He provided you an ark from the judgment. Your judgment's over. One day you'll be judged according to your deeds and you'll receive a reward for it. But he says, in between, then and now, get to work in the greatest ministry in the history of the universe. And the greatest ministry in the history of the universe is to restore the land of death into the land of the living. Well, next slide. Hard there. Never mind. Verse 8. Verse 8 in Exodus 19. I just need someone to read for me. I can't get my Bible flipped up right quick enough. Jack, can you read verse 8? Yeah. The whole people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the word of the people to the Lord. <clears throat> so if we can take away anything, let's take away a response. Let's give a response to God. And let's say, We will do everything that the Lord has spoken. All right, let's pray. So our Father is in heaven, Lord, all glory and honor and power and majesty is yours forever, God. Thank you that you want to accomplish something great and that you say, hey, I can use you to help accomplish it. Um, thank you even for myself that I used to wonder. I was far from God and you brought me through the ark, who is Christ Jesus, to yourself. And I thank you that once I step off that ark, I have fulfilling abundant life and you give me your commands and you give us you give us your statutes. You give us everything we need. You give us your word in order to accomplish the mission that you have set before us, Lord. Help us to make and to teach disciples. Let us not be afraid. Let us not compromise. But help us to go out from the church building into the world, even to turn Texas, where there is plenty of help needed. Help us to be truth and love around the world. We pray all this to our Father, with the help of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Son. Uh, may you be forever praised, O God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.